Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and this is Wise Girl January 26th and I am here with a very special guest, Josh Porta of Dharma Punks NYC. He's the guiding teacher there and he is also the author of a brand new book which I just finished called Unsubscribe which I do quite regularly <laughs> to certain newsletters that I get even though I keep adding, my into, adding myself into other ones. Um, hold it up this way. Uh, brand new hot off the press doing his book tour now and he's with us to talk not only about the book but the contents of the book the path that led him to writing the book and also to um share with you some of the wisdom that he's learned hard fought i may add um you know we all sort of have life experiences that bring us to the place of wanting to delve deeper into this stuff and now you're sharing what you've learned which i think is amazing so thank you for being here well thank you very much for inviting me it's, uh, it's my pleasure and it's my honor. So, um, you know, there's so much uh, in your book that's so rich, but I want to start first off with uh, the community that you have um, connected to, because I felt like reading this book, you were trying to sort of say, hey, listen, there's another way. We're in a culture where there has a lot of... Uh, consumerism. We're trying to have the best car, the best job, the best girlfriend or boyfriend. Uh, you know, we live in the comfort culture of uh, wanting to always think that we are supposed to be happy. And yet, you know, you're kind of pointing to the fact that life isn't really always that way. But here's a guideline for how to be able to be more flexible with what is presented. Can you talk a little bit about where that seed came from and how that represents itself with the people that you see in your uh, teaching community? Okay, well, uh, I started out very young in uh, sort of awareness of Buddhism because my dad in 1972, when I was just a kid, uh, got sober and to fulfill the requisites of 12-step recovery, uh, uh, essentially converted to Zen Buddhism. Uh, they said you have to, of course, have a higher power than yourself to maintain sobriety. So he chose Buddhism because any the all the other spiritual paths available didn't appeal to him. I'm grateful for him for that, certainly. And uh, so suddenly in the house, there were all these books and... Um, uh, he would take me, uh, I guess, to fortify his own courage to various different Buddhist sanghas. And the, uh, there were only a few fledgling ones where Buddhists could be found in the 70s in New York, but he would schlep me over to them. And uh, <clears throat> so one of the things that was interesting to me was um, from a very early age, uh, my mom had books of Freud and Jung. She loved psychology. My dad had Buddhist books. So I never once saw the Buddha outside of the guise of uh, a great, I think the first major psychologist, the first major uh, profound insights into the workings of the human mind and how it produces both suffering and peace. But also what I really liked was that uh, my father was very interested in sort of outsider cultures. He liked free jazz and he was an artist. And so he gravitated towards um, just circles of subcultures that 
were not mainstream and always had this kind of uh, outsidery edge. And I always viewed the Buddha as a, a sort of a outsider figure. And of course he actually was. The Buddha was not in his time most renowned for being the uh, creator of the mindfulness insights that are now so popular today. The Buddha was in his time a social revolutionary. He upended the revolting caste system of India and basically produced a, uh, a spiritual following where anyone who joined had to be able to eat and live and coexist with a group of people uh, in the time of the Buddha known as the untouchables. And actually still in India today, shockingly, there is the caste system where people still deemed untouchables. And so the Buddha insisted that this, you know, the skyans of the wealthy and rich and powerful who joined had to be willing to eat and share close quarters with, you know, people deemed the untouchables due to their, their essentially the class system that they were born into. So he also, um, even though there was, uh, there certainly were some issues, he was the first uh, spiritual figure to invite women into uh, as, you know, monastic partners into, uh, you know, be renunciates in his path. So um, to me, he was a very, uh, a rebellious social revolutionary psychologist who really challenged every presumption of his day. And he created, a, of course, an Eightfold Path as a way to uh, encapsulate this revolutionary new approach to life, which included really not just meditation only plays a, a limited factor in it. There are of the eightfold path, two of the factors, concentration and mindfulness are directly related to meditation. But then, you know, for instance, the three factors of right action, right speech, right livelihood require an ongoing investigation of how one relates to other people and talks and engages with others. So now we wake up today in 2018 and uh, we look around us and the role of the Dharma and Buddhism has been, and this is just my perception, but has been, I think, severely diminished by the current just fixation or representation of the Dharma as being, you're, you're essentially you consider yourself to be uh, following the Dharma if you meditate for a half an hour a day. Now there's nothing wrong with meditating for a half an hour a day, I do that, and I have been doing that for decades, but that doesn't make me a follower of the Dharma at all. It just makes me someone who meditates. The, what makes me in any way a Buddhist is a profound ongoing investigation of one, where do I cause any harm in my life in relationships to other people? How do I 
maximize my tribal bonds and relationships? How do I lean into um, Kalyanamita wise spiritual friendships? How do I constantly uh, investigate uh, the presumptions and insights that motivate me in the world? So the book was uh, written as a kind of the three parts of the book and the whole gist of the book was an attempt to sort of just from my perspective try to uh, describe what I think is a dharmic path for 2018 or for our contemporary times. And I think you did a beautiful job um, in the sense that you're talking about contemporary issues like people who are, um, the attachment theory would say avoidance, uh, talking about not really having any regard for people that they meet on Tinder because they all have sex with them and then sort of discard them after a few dates, thinking that they're being independent and choiceful when in fact they're not doing that deep, more investigative work that inquiry and insight meditation can offer if you're taking the dharmic path as a whole and not just as some, you know, mindfulness section that you, you know, can use for concentration purposes to be more present in some things. But I would, I would say just to, uh, uh, to know that both avoidance and anxious attachments are not like really choices. They're, uh, right. they are actually, uh, internal working models established very early in life due to, the caregiving environment and they're largely held or sustained by in, in regions of the brain that are unconscious. And what they require is an ongoing investigation and constant self, uh, you know, pushing oneself out of one's uh, uh, patterns or tendencies. For instance, uh, somebody who's born anxious uh, is someone who grew up with a parent whose emotions were often extremely inconsistent with the child's emotional states. The mother or father couldn't mirror the child. And so the child begins to view other people's emotions as scary and thus wants at times proximity and sex, but the moment intimacy, a real vulnerability of emotional exchange, uh, they find that trapping, you know, engulfing, and so they flee. Just as much as the anxious person grows up with uh, a parent who's sometimes emotionally available, but other times unreliable, you know, uh, distracted, and not available. And so the child doesn't know that uh, caregiving and soothing will be available. And that child grows up to expect abandonment and thus clings and preoccupies and tries to constantly monitor the relationship, trying to figure out when he or she is going to be abandoned. So both are just the, the products of um, early environments that don't create a lot of confidence in being intimate with other people. And anyway, I just wanted to put that in. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely 100% agree with you on all of that. And I apologize if I misspoke in a way that yeah. was um, indicative of thinking that it was a choiceful awareness, because the choiceful awareness, I agree with you, comes in when we have that um, opportunity to kind of see, oh, this is a pattern of action that I exhibit. But is it really from the deepest part of me? Yes, limbically it is, right? Our emotions. Yeah midbrain and all of that you know we can talk about implicit memory versus explicit memory and all of that but that um but that really when we bring our awareness to that our metacognition and our mentalizing we can begin to insert and shift into behavior that's non-harming and more nourishing for ourselves and for others so i guess um the tinder reference was more about you sort of talking about the fact that you're trying to marry these uh sort of ancient wisdom teachings with a uh view of and psychology, as you talked about with your dad and your mom, and sort of bring them together in a way that can be approachable and relatable in what I would call applied mindfulness. It's applied. You're actually using this in your life. You're, you're on a cushion or you're studying text so that you can live well and more fully and thrive as opposed to in that contracted state. So you do, in fact, um, bring in this book uh, both that psychological perspective and the uh, Buddhism uh, teachings that you have studied and translated and teach. But what if somebody says, okay, I, I'm down with the fact that I may need to go a little deeper and not just sit on the cushion only for, you know, five or 10 or 20 minutes a day, but I'm not down with being Buddhist. Is there a way to describe Buddhism for people who don't want to affiliate themselves with a the religion as a set of teachings and, if you will, right living or virtuous or integrity, um, you know, sort of characterful uh, ways of being that could still be a framework and a container for those who don't want to affiliate with it as a religion per se? Well, ultimately, uh, Buddhism is, you know, essentially just a, a generic phrase denoting the various practices associated with what the Buddha or early Buddhists taught. And another way of saying it, you know, would be the Dharma. But at, at heart, the, the goal of these teachings is simply to, or not simply, is profoundly to uh, reduce suffering. So somebody who says they don't want to pursue <clears throat> uh, investigating beyond sitting on the cat on the cushion is basically saying, well, I really don't want to diminish suffering and stress in my life. I just like to have a, a sort of 25 minute practice where I can zone out, but, or check out from the stresses of life. But then, so you don't really, I would say to them, so it's okay that for the rest of the 23 and a half hours of the day that you are, living and engaging in the world in quite possibly a way that is increasing stress and interpersonal alienation and a lack of fulfillment and understanding of the meaning of life. So I suppose that's where I was. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess my, my point about that is simply that some people may not be ready to take on the verbiage of Buddhist, but oh, yeah. be willing to adhere to the principles and to the teachings as such as guidelines. And yeah. so sort of knowing that that invitation is still there, even if you don't want to necessarily call yourself a Buddhist, right? They say, we don't care, act like a Buddha. You don't have to be a Buddhist, right? Like, oh, exactly. Like, 
Let me turn that off so that it doesn't. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Again, the book is unsubscribe. It's really terrific. And um, what Josh does in his book is he takes a lot of these ancient wisdom teachings and he does, like I said, uh, I called it applied mindfulness, where he's. Uh, hi, I'm just plugging your book again. <laughs> pulls, uh, these wisdom teachings and psychology uh, so that you can just find a sort of way in the morass of what I think is often sort of flippant uh, advice and often sometimes not very effective to kind of uproot the depths of what he was talking about earlier in terms of why do we do what we do? Because Josh, that's the question that's always, as a journalist, been my motivating factor is why do people do what they do? Mm. That was, and I didn't even really know it. I couldn't really name it. But as a journalist, and now as someone who practices and teaches and studies Dharma and shares that, it's become a real interesting parallel because it's a radical question to get to the bottom of it, right? It took a lot to get, for example, Larry Nasser sentenced, but that started with investigative journalism. And that's mm. different from people looking at their own minds and their own assumptions about why it is that they do what they do. So I want to walk it back because <clears throat> you and I share a few things in common. We don't drink anymore, mm -hmm. you know, uh, based on precipitous events that, you know, sort of were calamitous. We gave up our uh, sort of glamorous careers in your case on Madison Avenue in advertising. And uh, I don't know if I've entirely given up my TV role, but you know, pretty much it's taken on a different form. Um, talk to me about that part where you cracked it's sort of everything became different for you you don't teach at corporations you don't have a regular paycheck you are learning to trust into this energy that is um, supporting you and all of the nuances of insecurity and uncertainty that uh, that allowing will bring can you talk about your your shift yeah um I mean, I would say that if I was going to look or pinpoint a specific uh, nexus or period, it was right after 9-11, you know, being a lifelong New Yorker, uh, growing up in the shadow of the Twin Towers, my dad would take me there all the time because that's where his studio was where he would make art right been essentially a few blocks away and uh so um <clears throat> you know there was also some really negative aspects of growing up with my father who before he got sober being a violent alcoholic who was abusive to my mom and myself it was uh there was a lot of emotional psychological scars that led to my alcoholism which lasted from the time I was 14 to 34. And so in... Yeah, before I did. <laughs> I, uh, I, well, I, I stopped about 23 years ago, uh, 19, early 1995, so literally 23 years ago. And, um, but around right after 9-11, uh, late 2001, I, you know, after those events, had a kind of depressive 
episode and part of it was an absolute feeling of meaningless in life uh, having seen up close the results of 9-11 i literally uh, now i wish i hadn't but literally the next day besides seeing it with my own two eyes as it happened but the next day i found a way past the police and went up very close to where the smoldering remains were uh, I just felt pulled emotionally, a gravitational pull to to try to understand and grasp what had happened. And it left this deep emotional imprint of uh, what in the, what could possibly be the point of marketing <laughs> and yeah. advertising in the face of this massive reminder of both the fragility of life the amount of hatred that is in the world, the amount of death that uh, uh, occurs and also occurs, I mean, occurs from human uh, volatility, even more so just uh, having radically rammed in one's face the utter fragility of life, the lack of any kind of guarantee and it just, and then going into work after that was just, the juxtaposition was too insurmountable. The gulf between um, what I had emotionally seen versus what I was being asked to do, designing websites for, you know, companies that made, uh, antacids that rarely worked very well. It just, I, I it, no, I know it was insupportable for me. It was, it was something that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make any sense of it. Perhaps someone more resourceful than I might have been able to, but I, I just couldn't. And at the time, I was deeply heavily, as I had been for much of my life, involved in. Uh, spiritual practice, especially uh, I was going to the newly formed Dharma Punks uh, group that Noah Levine, who came to New York, was leading. And so I really put all of my efforts into just trying to find some kind of insight and purpose and meaning for what to do that would give life some sense of uh, um, solidity. What, to make some sense out of to it. To make some sense, yes. To make some sense and to have some feeling of purpose in the aftermath of 9-11. And um, one of the things I would do besides, you know, just volunteering it uh, with Noah would be, I would literally sit to ask to really deepen my because I was really looking at the Dharma so deeply at that point, um, I literally would go to work, close the door to my office and like spend of the eight hours I'd be there, I'd spend like six of them just like reading, transcribing talks by every Buddhist teacher I could find that I liked. People like Ajahn Amaro and Suchito and Sundara and, uh, uh, Brahm, Ortana, Sarabiku, anybody I could find, I would just tr literally listen and transcribe to try to deepen into what they were 
they were uh, transmitting and tried to get a grasp, an even deeper grasp on the sort of fundamental principles of the Dharma. And so that went on for quite a while. I mean, I somehow managed to get by at work for, you know, a number of years, essentially pumping out, you know, uh, graphic designs while spending most of the day just feebly embedded in like almost like a, what I would call at that point in my life, like a graduate course in deep Dharma study. And uh, so eventually by the time Noah left in 2005, I had had so many years of volunteering with him and study. You know, I, the study started in the Dharma when I was in college in Oberlin in the 1980s, but the deep study, the deep dive had been going on for four solid years. So when he left in 2005, he said, well, listen, I need you to, you know, there's going to be a group. I need you to carry it on. So I followed in his footsteps and, you know, it's now been 13 years. It's amazing. How did you find the renunciation, if you will, hard, meaning that, you know, you had the income, you had the, um, there were certain parts of that, right. That I'm sure were, helpful to paying the rent or the mortgage or whatever it is. Um, but that there was another part of you, that deeper part when you got still and you listened to your body, you listened to your conscience, if you will, you listened to your own uh, true nature, which is not attached to a fixed sense of self, but rather the yeah. nature, I'm saying, you know, not the fixated self. When you listen to your real heart, um, and felt what it had to tell you, you were like, well, I don't really know what the outcome of this is going to be, but I'm going to go forward and kind of jump off the cliff, right? And, and, and give it a whirl and, and see if it, can, if it can stick. And you have made it stick. You say it's a hand-to-mouth kind of you never really know existence. But can you speak to, for our listeners who are really kind of in that place where um, they don't feel like things are quite right. They're kind of at that place where they feel like they're mailing it in sometimes, not really sure if um, their life has meaning or purpose, but haven't had that like big divorce or death of someone in the family or some uh, big 9-11 experience that was their aha moment, to use another Oprah phrase, that kind of brought them to their knees and said, you know, I've got to have a different way. Cause I know that's what turned me around. Mm. I had one of those after years of having near versions of that, but none of them stuck until I had one about three years ago. And I'm like, done, game over, full stop. I don't know what's next. Let's see. Mm. But not um, everybody has that or has had that yet. <clears throat> well, first I should note that because um, I do realize that one of the uh, unfortunate about the book is I couldn't take the amount of time and pages to talk about the process of fully leaving a steady, reliable job to become essentially, I would say right now I am crowdsourced as a, that's my, how I'm financially surviving is that, you know, people give small donations, but it amounts to an amount that I can survive on, which is great. But the, I didn't just say, okay, in 2005, you know, that's it. I have an opportunity to teach. I'm going to quit advertising. I, what I did was around 2006 or seven, I, I 
started to work freelance and I gradually was the goal of working less and less and trying to see if I could make enough just to survive by essentially teaching by donation and uh, uh, so I'd leave out a basket. And at first, you know, it was like, you know, 90% came from advertising and 10% and then over six months, maybe 80, 20. And then as years passed, it eventually became so by, I don't know, 2011, you know, it was a five year, five and a half, six year process. I was no longer supported by working as a freelance graphic designer. I was working as, you know, from teaching the Dharma. And it was, even then, it was an extremely, like, I, I would say almost like poverty level existence if I was living by my income. Certainly, I was living off of savings from the time and advertising. But as time passed, and um, I, I, through the years, as I, as I became an empowered teacher as well, I started doing a lot of spiritual, Buddhist spiritual counseling, meeting with individuals, and that's always by donation, I never charge. So that created an additional revenue stream. And so that's the whole process. It was not, it seems in the book, because I couldn't write, I couldn't write about that. Okay, well, but you just explained it, and I appreciate that. And like most things, there isn't necessarily, um, except for the shift in your awareness on 9-11, there there isn't always just the the one thing. But also it takes, I think, it speaks to the Dharma itself in terms of patience or constancy or allowing or unfolding or creating space, having that... um, what evolves as opposed to attachment to outcome, right? So, you know, sort of seeing, seeing what comes. There were a few things you mentioned in the book. uh, And before we jump to that, I just wanted to say, because you asked me about people who had not yet had the, the, uh, the sort of uh, epical event in their life, which leads to some form of uh, seeking meaning or purpose. My, my, my offering or I thought would be, it might not have happened yet, but it will happen because uh, not just because of the, the, the basic first noble truth offering, which is that, you know, old age sickness and death are constants as is being separated from the loved. Uh, We all go through uh, eventually uh, experiences of radical emotional wounds or uh, extreme uh, or events that do not fit into the mundane mindset or perceptions that allow us to go about our lives essentially trudging from one paycheck to the next or one project to the next without a without an inquiry as to when I'm on my deathbed, what will I be proud of that I did? What will have given my life meaning? For me, I constantly tried to keep that reflection fresh. I've done hospice work with people who are facing, uh, uh, you know, essentially uh, in their last months of life, 
And I teach yearly at, um, for the last seven years, at Zen Center for Contemplative uh, Studies, Zen Care, which trains hospice workers. And so that kind of, um, the only way people can continue with their heads down, plugging away without a asking what will give my life meaning and deeper purpose is if they are hiding or denying the inevitability, not only of their own death, but the times where they won't be able to work and they will lose their own ability to uh, function in the world the way they have been able to for the bulk of their life. Well, hello there. Is that Izzy? That, that is Spanky. Spanky. Or, Okay. Spanky, see if I can show you Spanky. Well, Hello, Spanky. Yeah. Hello, Spanky. <laughs> I have two that I don't know. <laughs> they're being shy right now, but they may be around somewhere. Yeah, there's one. Right. So, uh, oh, yeah. Cat break. Yeah. <laughs> That's Penny. Oh, we, Penny. We're cat Penny. people. I'm down with cat people. I'm not sure about that cat person essay that was circulating, but cat people anyway. <laughs> Go on. Oh, no, that was basically it. I just wanted to, when, when, if people are at a place where they don't uh, have um, yet that transformative experience that essentially thrusts them to, you know, essentially pushes in directly in one's direct path a, uh, a demand to investigate what is giving their life meaning, what it will they be, what will they cherish, or what will they think of as wasted time when they look back on their lives. Um, my advice would be to stop what you're doing at some point and either do some volunteer work with people who are in need or haven't, who are uh, facing those very issues because that will be your experience sooner or later right none of us get out <laughs> what do they say you know we, we don't get out of this alive we don't you know and that's the thing i mean the, the first noble truth being the truth of suffering it's not a judgment about it it's just that it's there and um of course the second arrow being the story that we add to it which often is laden with all kinds of perceptions really that may or may not be true can you talk about you just said being separated from the love and I think that cuts to the core of what I found to be what I find um, sad but true but also hopeful about Western culture and you know folks in general is that because of um, a lot of our adverse child experiences or whatever you want to you know term it as uh, whether or not we feel or think of them as explicitly harmful or not, the way that they're embodied in our physiology and our neurology and our responses and our nervous system shows up when we have interpersonal challenges or professional challenges, that people think there's something wrong with them. The inner mm. critic has taken over and sort of shackled them to this, you know, electric chair and they're sort of getting zapped every day and they're sort of like keeping it at bay, but that there is another perspective, which is there's nothing wrong with you. And you've learned some habits like you talked about earlier, based on conditioning, based on childhood, that you can tweak, that there is a remedy for, that there is a, uh, a pathway that you can follow. And um, you said emotional pain in the book, 
emotional pain isn't healed by reason. And we're kind of in this left brain culture that kind of rewards this independent, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, mentality. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to the application of this for folks who really at a core level feel, you know, there's Hiri and Otapa, right? You have these two like guilt and shame and our consciousness. But in this culture, we kind of don't even have the external shame that we used to so much as we do the internal you know, so can you talk a little bit about how that internal, this is a process of internal liberation, and then mm -hmm. it allows us to then comport ourselves in our lives that is more free and relaxed externally? Well, uh, I'll start with the very last comment, because I think that that's actually something worth investigating. When you said this is an internal transformation, and then it becomes external, actually, I would say that uh, part of what I'm pointing towards is that it's not at first an internal transformation that human beings are relational beings at heart. The entire brain is set up to connect, establish proximity. And when we're born as newborns, we can't survive uh, on our own. We require the constant attention and care of um, a caregiver or caregivers. And so the child's great drive, as Bowlby noted, is to simply seek attention from another. And the child does that by, you know, crying, giggling, gesticulating, and it, it, it essentially expresses its emotional state of being, its entire state of being is it's expressed in its emotional signals. And if it gets the attention of a caregiver, the caregiver not only holds, touches and soothes the child, which then regulates the child's emotions, it also provides the child with the things it needs to survive, food, warmth, liquid, shelter, changing diapers or whatever. It, it anticipates and meets the child's needs. That need for attention uh, and maintaining secure attachment is the fundamental human need. That is it. And that's it, period, end of sentence, to attach. So when there are disruptions in that attachment, where sometimes we have emotions that, given our caregivers or our family systems, psychological makeups, they can't mirror and uh, tolerate and greet, the child then will repress those primary emotions and replace them with secondary performative emotions and create a false self. And then we grow up with that as a, a, a manner of surviving. We, you know, a lot of women, for example, in this misogynist culture are due to their family systems are disempowered of their anger. And when you're disempowered of your anger, then you can't uh, subsequently in adult life set boundaries in relationships and confront injustice in the workplace. And then you become uh, essentially disempowered of the very emotions that protect. So while part of the healing is emotionally connecting with those uh, affects or deep emotions that we need to survive, because every emotion has a survival uh, message and right. impulse. Uh, so part of it is internal, but the bulk of the healing, from my perspective, is from what the Buddha called Kalyanamita. The Buddha said the 
the, the prerequisite of the Dharma is not meditation. The prerequisite of being spiritual is connecting with other spiritual people so that I would add, you get the corrective emotional response. You get the love and attention and care that you didn't get despite the, the best intentions of your parents. Pe parents can only do so much of a job but you get and you uh, essentially cre create the reparative emotional experience in your connection with other spiritual practitioners. At heart, I would rather have, if I was, a, you know, put at gunpoint and said, what would you, the single thing you would most like to see, I would not like to see people coming to Sangha just sitting in silence meditating. I would most like to see people coming together in a community and disclosing their emotional states, because that's the one thing that contemporary capitalism or contemporary materialist consumer culture has deprived us of. We're increasingly using uh, cell phones uh, and smartphones, I should say, you know, as means to connect, which is actually not real emotional connection. Mm -hmm. The thing that allows us to be emotionally balanced and uh, 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 to not only heal early wounds, but to stay emotionally regulated is what we're doing right now. We're talking. We can see each other's facial expressions. You can hear my tone of voice. You can see my body language, at least from, you know, here up. You can, you know, you can get a, a visceral gestalt. Yeah. And that is what your right brain is processing all the time through what's called neuroception, unconsciously processing. And in doing that, we are what's called limbic co-regulation. We're co-regulating each other. And that is, for me, the fundamental import that is now so absent today. There's an epidemic of loneliness that's happening in Western culture. If you travel to, like I have been fortunate to travel quite a few times to uh, Thailand, and you see the social organization, which from birth to, you know, right before death, people live still in very close, at least in outside of main city centers, they live in close proximity. And there's a lot of uh, family and tribal connection that happens in literally the Buddhist centers, which are less about... And when you go in Thailand, you don't see really very often people meditating. You see people, you know, congregating in the, you know, essentially a Buddhist center. That is what we need here. That's the fundamental missing ingredients. And I read a study that uh, not only for every hour we spend on uh, a smartphone do we wind up spending an hour or less getting face-to-face, -face, you know. Uh, yeah, you, you put that in here. You yeah. Know, that it's basically, the more time you spend on your phone, it'll have a direct correlation to the right. lot of time that you're spending with people who care about you. And if you, but there's studies showing a direct link between the amount of time that people spend looking at laptops and phones and anxiety, because the less we are face-to-face co-regulating each other through emotional disclosure and creating a safe container for each other's experience, the less there's that interpersonal dyadic exchange, then 
there is a becomes this gulf between the self that we cling to that we want to show other people because we believe that self will get love and acceptance from others like i'm smart i'm confident versus the way we feel internally which is i'm sad i'm lonely i'm i'm exhausted and we the bifurcation between the the sort of conceptual self and the felt self uh, become the 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 gulf is filled with anxiety and depression yeah because we're not refilling the well of the water that we're depleting and we're you know when we're online too much or we're not um and and the way that we do that is through the engagement with others uh who are trusted it's all about safety it's about feeling safe it's about feeling connected being felt being seen and also i love how frank ossoteski describes it as um his practice is a practice of intimacy right and you're talking about that is like it's an intimacy with oneself with others you're disclosing you're sharing but it's in a container of safety around um essentially feeling loved feeling connected you know it's not all that complicated but it's not what a lot of people are willing to do because we feel once we're vulnerable we're defenseless if we've you know had some some issues early on um whereas other people to their credit are not always like that i mean there are securely attached people that that you know come out of the womb and are nurtured in a way that that maybe that way. We're wrapping up. Um, I guess there's um, a couple things that you had mentioned, like um, aim as practices, accept, uh, inquire, and mother. And then in the back of the book, you talk about this three-step process, reprioritize your goals, understand yourself, and connect authentically with others. I think you just touched on that last one really beautifully. And um, we did talk a little bit I think a little bit about the reprioritization earlier as well. Um, it was the understanding yourself part that we sort of, I guess I was trying to allude to that when I was talking about that self-inquiry and mm. yes, that connection, but sort of getting to that point where it's like, it's okay to look at yourself and hold yourself in warm regard and also use that as the portal to connection. Right. That's the uh, middle part of the book, which is that essentially when people, you know, when the Buddha made his, his uh, profound statements about anatta or not self, what he was really pointing to is this idea that there's some kind of language-based story that I can, of, of who I am, that I can cling to that makes sense of my personality or my identity or my ongoing experience. And he, what he was pointing to is that, of course, the internal experience we have is too um, fluid and fluctuant and, and, and changing to ever be encapsulated in some kind of internal inner chatter or narrative or idea, I am this kind of person or that kind of person, and this is who I am. In, in other words, we can't make a language statement in our mind that encapsulates who we are. But we can get to a kind of a deeper understanding of who we are if we forego it being an idea or a statement and instead be a felt experience, as the great Carl Rogers and so many other psychologists have noted that it's the felt experience, the inner visceral experience of being in a body in the core emotional responses that are really 
the deep patterns that exist from childhood through our adult life. They're encoded in the first two years of life where we are entirely emotional right hemispheric beings that connect and we develop, learn to connect through our body language and the interactions we have create what's called uh, internal working models, which are gut feelings that guide us. Oh, this person's safe and this person's not safe and this person is who will give me love and this person will not give me love. And those gut visceral, what the Buddha called Vedana is profoundly the core, I would say, if we're looking for a sort of beginning of self-understanding to push below the, inner, inner, the verbiage, which will never encapsulate or come up with any kind of uh, real uh, uh, insight uh, or that's, that's in, terms of, in terms of meaning, in terms of who am I or what am I or what do I need to understand about myself and it being a far more embodied uh, emotional connection because one's emotions are the least subject to change in all of our experience. The stuff that's stored in the right brain after about three or four is essentially very resistant to change for, for better or for worse. You know, sometimes it's great. Sometimes the thirst for love and the resilience and the desire to heal is deeply embedded and that sustains us through our lives. Sometimes if we grew up with abusive or unavailable parents, then that internal working model that love only comes when you chase after people who are unavailable, that stays there. But at least we have to start from knowing those deep emotional patterns and they're not ideas. They're not thoughts. You can think whatever you want, but your, your behavior is actually going to be driven by uh, the right orbital frontal, which is emotional, not conceptual. That's what we know from the great neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, that people's behavior is not logical. We also know that from Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, that people do not behave through thinking logically. What they do is they behave in accordance with their deep emotional patterns. So for me, the start of any kind of self-inquiry starts from a sort of always a mindful reconnection with the first three foundations of mindfulness, which is how am I breathing? How is my, am I sitting? The second foundation, what, are my, what am I feeling in my stomach, my chest, my throat, my face? And the third foundation is what mood am I in? Am I happy, sad, anxious, depressed? And then go to those because the, the desire to try to figure out or come to grips with who I am through the fourth foundation of what kind of mental content is going on, what kind of inner chatter, that's not, that's those, that's actually the least likely to provide you with self-awareness. Right. Yeah. The, the, the thoughts are, uh, are just thoughts. <laughs> They're not who we are. <laughs> They're the most subject to change. I mean, you know, you can wake up, or think a million different things because it's being interjected into your brain by just constant imbibement and culture. But the deep patterns that guide your behavior are emotional and are not being, yeah. you know, constantly that changing. 
they're in us, you know, and, um, and they are of us and we, we are of them. And, and I think that's the whole thing is to learn to sort of understand them so that we can see what's going on so that we can then take in, uh, in choiceful awareness out of that, that, you know, wise action, right. The, yeah. you know, to sort of begin to shift and, and that kind of thing. I could talk to you forever, but I can't. <laughs> so, you know, I just wanted to say that, um, I think you're doing a really great service for a lot of people. I think that um, there's a lot of uh, folks who teach Dharma, teach Buddhism, teach mindfulness that um, appeal to certain segments of the population, right? But if you're teaching Dharma well, um, it appeals to all because it's sort of like the way, right? It is, it's sort of the truth of things. And you certainly have a way of uh, incorporating these deep, deep truths with, I think, a very contemporary approachable uh, style and conversation and very informed, uh, very informed teachings that are helpful to a lot of people. So if there's anything else you want to add, um, feel free to share. I'll plug the book one last time and tell people where, where to find you. I mean, all I'd say is that if you, you know, uh, everything I teach is offered uh, av available for free on dharmapunksnyc.com. You can hear the pod. You can, the talks are on the podcast, so it's really, they're not a podcast, they're just every week I tape one of the talks I give at one of the centers, and they're always available for free. So if anybody would like to hear my New York neurotic take on integrating the Dharma with, with core, you know, contemporary psychological uh, insights and concepts, they are uh, invited and encouraged to stop by the site. Yeah, right now it says dharmapunksnyc.podbean.com. Well, you can just go to dharmapunksnyc.com and that's, you can get access, access to the, all of them there. dharmapunksnyc.com. And the book is Unsubscribe, which I highly recommend. It's uh, not a tough slog. It is, oh, you know? <laughs> and I, there's a whole backstory about how you wrote it in four months and rewarding yourself for when you get little things done that you know i would have loved to have gotten into but maybe that's part two of this conversation if we can schedule another part of it sometime sure of course absolutely um but in the meantime i really am grateful uh for your time today josh and um for all of your wisdom and teachings so thank you you're very welcome have a wonderful day you too